Hello, this episode of the podcast features discussion of issues that may cause distress, including sexual harm and abuse by siblings, and listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Let's Talk Social Work. My name is Andy McClanahan, and today I'm joined by social worker Anna Glinsky. Anna is Deputy Director for Knowledge and Practice Development at the Centre of Expertise on Child Sexual Abuse. She and I will be discussing the challenging issue of sibling sexual behaviour and exploring how social workers should respond to instances of inappropriate, problematic and abusive sexual behaviour between siblings. In 2023, the Centre of Expertise on Child Sexual Abuse published guidance on responding to sibling sexual behaviour, and I have included a link to the guidance in our show notes for this episode. Anna, welcome to Let's Talk Social Work. How are you doing? I'm good. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Yes, it's great to have you. Um, We are, as always, recording via Zoom. Listeners may notice I have a stinking cold. So Anna, you are safe because we're talking over the video. Where are you right now? Uh, I'm in my home in Brighton, actually. Yeah. Oh, so. right. Okay. How's Brighton in, in January? What is this it's, January the 29th? It's incredibly misty at the moment. I went for a walk this morning. I could hardly see 10 feet in front of me. But, oh, is that right? Okay. Yeah. That's mysterious. Right. Yeah. So <laughs> we are, t- yes, today we're talking about, we're talking about an issue we've never uh, talked about on the podcast before. Uh, it's a very interesting one. It's one I got to be honest on. I've been a wee bit um, apprehensive about engaging with this. You, uh, uh, Centre for um, Expertise on Child Sexual Abuse, you you published this guidance back in 2023. I can't quite remember when, but I know you were in touch uh, or your, your your comms guys were in touch and we're really keen to make the episode and I was really keen to make it too. We had to wait a little while. I'm sorry, we had a backlog. So I'm, I'm glad we've got around to it now. I want to start. Can, we, can you tell me a little bit about, do we have any understanding of the prevalence of sibling sexual abuse? Is this something that data is collected on? Understanding the prevalence of sexual abuse generally is <clears throat> a pretty tricky, tricky thing to do, really, because um, generally the whole nature of child sexual abuse. So it, it's it's a very hidden kind of crime. It carries a lot of stigma and shame around it. And actually what we know is that the majority of people who experience child sexual abuse don't tell anyone at the time about it. So what we have to do in terms of prevalence is kind of rely generally on retrospective studies or the very few disclosures that we do get, and also reports to the police when they when they actually happen. So generally, prevalence is difficult to establish. The conservative estimate from what we think, so we've done some work at the CSA Centre um, around general prevalence, and what we know is that around 15% of girls and 5% of boys experience some form of sexual abuse before the age of 16. And in terms of the most common context for that, we also know that... Um, family abuse, uh, sexual abuse within the family environment is one of the most common contexts. Within that, and generally around about a third of young people, uh, the kind of what we know about all sexual abuse, around about a third generally is perpetrated by other children and young people. When it comes to sibling sexual abuse, um, kind of the larger studies indicate that around um, 15% of um, people say that they had some sexually, kind of sexually abusive behaviour towards siblings and around 5% um, abusive behaviour, so sort of what you would term sibling sexual abuse towards other siblings. What we know from all of that is that essentially all professionals and particularly social workers will definitely come across it at some point in their career. Okay, okay, so it's more prevalent than I would have imagined. Um, So just coming back to you were saying, yes, sexual abuse is underreported and we can understand why that is, but do you, is uh, sibling sexual abuse, is that, is that, 
less likely to be reported than other forms of sexual abuse. Is that would that be correct? Yeah. So we think it's even less likely to be reported than other forms of intrafamilial. Actually, so intrafamilial child sexual abuse is particularly um, difficult to report, um, essentially because it's happening within the family, and there are all the sorts of threats and manipulations that happen in that context. With sibling sexual abuse, there's um, something about not siblings don't always recognise at the time that what's happening is abusive or um, is concerning. Um, and generally, siblings have uh, a greater sense of loyalty towards brothers and sisters, for example. They worry about brothers and sisters getting into trouble. Um, and so we think it's probably even less likely to be disclosed. In terms of kind of concerns about family breakdown and risks to the family unit, is that, a, is that an issue as well, which comes into play? In terms of disclosure? Yeah. Yeah, so siblings worry will worry that their brother or sister will get into trouble, that um, their family might be broken up. Um, that they'll upset one or other of their parents. Um, very often sibling sexual abuse or sibling sexual behaviour will take place in the context of reconstituted families. And so often there can be all those complications as well. So, um, you know... Just for anyone who's not familiar, reconstituted families, to explain that, would you, Anna? So families where um, birth, both birth parents don't live together. So there may be step uh, step parents involved, step brothers and sisters, half brothers and sisters, those sort of dynamics. Okay, okay. And is there, is there, do we have any idea in terms of prevalence when it is step-siblings as opposed to um, blood relatives? No, no. There okay. is some There is some research that break down both, but um, essentially when we think about sibling sexual abuse and behaviour, we generate, within our guides, we're generally talking about um, siblings who have grown up in the same family. It can also include half-siblings, step-siblings that have grown up in the same family. It might also be in some families where cousins are living together, but as if they're brother and sister. So it's quite a broad definition. It could also be foster siblings or adoptive siblings as well. So you've said earlier, this is an issue social workers will encounter. But I'm keen to know how well, in your experience, do social workers understand this issue? You know, is there a risk that sexual behaviour by siblings isn't properly recognised or even at worst that it's dismissed when it is happening? Yeah, absolutely. So there are a number of factors, really. Often, we know it from the research, but I also know in terms of practice that you can get this really varied responses to sibling sexual behaviour. So either... Um, either professionals and parents as well, but sort of really underestimating uh, the impact and the harm of it. Um, and, and some of that's to do with, um, I just think, our ideas around children and sex. So not imagining that children can be sexual beings, not wanting to think about or not really acknowledging that siblings might have sen- sexual interactions. Um, and, and so what can happen is people can underestimate it and see it as experimentation. While sometimes it can just be that, um, on the other hand, people can really over-respond. So sometimes situations which are experimentation between siblings might be perceived as being much more impactful and harmful and difficult to deal with um, than it should, because actually with experimental kind of, there are some normal sexual interactions that can happen between siblings um, that actually are very manageable and able to deal with and will stop once once those children are told it's not okay. So even even talking about normal sexual interactions, that feels quite uncomfortable yeah. to hear. Um, I don't want like I don't want any too much detail, but Anna, what would be considered a normal interaction? Yeah, so normal interaction might be t- t- more kind of developmentally normal behaviour you would see in younger children, I would say, because once they're older, they you know should know better. But so generally, we're talking about children under the age of eight or nine, really. Um, and normal interaction would be, for example, I don't know, a three and a four year old. Um, 
you show me yours, I'll show you mine, playing doctors and nurses, maybe having some kind of curiosity around that. So that would be considered kind of a more normal behaviour, really. And thinking back to the guidance then when a parent notices that and says, listen, that's that's not okay, let's stop doing that. At that point, if the behaviour stops, that's not a problem. If the behaviour were to continue after that, what kind of, what sort of category would you put that into if, if that sort of behaviour continued? Yeah, so if the behaviour continues, um, you would, or it's becoming like a repeated pattern of behaviour, you would you would consider it more inappropriate sexual behaviour, um, where actually you might need more intervention in order to stop happening, to, to stop that happening. So um, advice for parents about how to keep their children safe, some kind of work perhaps with children around what's, what's right and wrong, what a healthy relationship looks like. So that would more be your kind kind of um, approach if it was inappropriate. So let's say developmentally appropriate, then inappropriate, then then problematic and then abusive. That's the way it's categorised, isn't it, in the guidance? Yeah, that's right. And that kind of falls along with, um, so Simon Hackett did a continuum of sexual behaviour. And so a lot of this work stems from that continuum where you kind of look right across the board of all the different types of interactions that can happen. It can be quite tricky to um, determine... uh, you know, which is which really. Um, and there are certain kind of factors you can look for to work out whether it's inappropriate, problematic or abusive. Um, and that's a really important first task for social workers to do. Can you tell me what that is? How do you do that? How do you differentiate inappropriate and problematic? And then if we talk about how do you differentiate problematic and abusive? Inappropriate and problematic. Yes. Yeah, so, okay. Problematic um, would probably be behaviours that are uh, more repeated and are forming sort of a pattern. They fall more clearly outside of developmental norms. So the children might be older. They might, um, instance, might be happening really out of context. Um, and there might be a bit of a, a kind of lack of clarity around uh, the idea of consent or reciprocity. So it's kind of more indication that there's some power dynamics that are playing into that interaction, essentially. But they're not quite abusive. So they're not kind of they're not at the point where there are significant power differences. So one of the things that you look at is what's the difference in power dynamics between the two siblings, for example, in age. So um, the bigger the age gap, the more concerning that might be. But it could be that it's around the size of the child or the intellectual um, you know, cognitive di- differences between children um, or positions of authority within the family. Um, so where there's kind of more of a power imbalance, uh, a larger age gap, and also if there's kind of indication of the use of threat or violence um, and manipulation, then that would be considered abusive. When we talked earlier about social workers either minimising or, for want of a better word, catastrophizing behaviours, which do you, in your experience, which have you found to be more uh, prevalent, minimization or catastrophization? Oh, that's a good question. Um, gosh, what would I consider to be more prevalent? Probably the underestimation of the seriousness, I would say, is more common. And I think some of that is about people are really busy, it's difficult to think about, and you've, you know, the you're going to have a lot of cases on your caseload as a social worker, not just sibling cases. So, you know, the the amount of time you can focus on it. And actually, if you could just think this is probably normal, that makes for a much easier intervention, essentially. You know, it can kind of help. Both of them, both are um, unhelpful because actually if you're overestimating the seriousness, then you can be labelling children and intervening when you don't need to. If you're underestimating the seriousness and you don't respond appropriately, then actually you are missing an opportunity to prevent further harm. What what we know is that um, children and young people who display harmful sexual behaviour with the right intervention do not go on to abuse as adults. And so the quicker the better. Even if our intervention is really low, at that lower end of the spectrum, 
it's really good to do something with that family to prevent further abuse. And you mentioned, you know, that doesn't mean children will go on to abuse as adults. I mean, I'm conscious that the Centre of Expertise in Child Sexual Abuse, uh, that you avoid using the terms victim, survivor and perpetrator in the context of, of, of this, this area of work. Why is that? So those terms kind of have quite um, sort of overtones of adult sexual offending. And what we know about, um, so back before, like going back some time, probably when I was sort of first in practice, really, um, young people who displayed harmful sexual behaviour were very much seen as like mini mini adult sex offenders. But what that didn't take account of is the fact they're children, they're still learning and developing, they will be experimenting and getting things wrong and trying things out. And actually for most of them, with the like I said, with the right intervention, they won't carry on being abusive children also are living in a family context and what's that what that means is you've got a lot of opportunities to intervene in different ways through parents where you think about adults who are sexually offending actually they haven't got parents and family around them to help them with that you know um so we so what we do is we use the terms the child who has been harmed and the child who has harmed often with sibling sexual behaviour it's not always that easy to establish who was responsible for it um it's it's not that clear cut in terms of consent and which child you know, started it or carried it on also just to say some sort of inappropriate well some developmentally appropriate sexual behaviour can become inappropriate can become problematic can become abusive because it might have started with mutual experimentation and then that carries on and then one child actually thinks I don't want this anymore but the other child does. So it can kind of change over time. Yes. And the child who has harmed, the child who has been harmed, both are children. And it's important, I suppose, to to, 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 to maintain that, that understanding. Yeah. So we would actively we would actively talk about not not talking the child about the child who has harmed as being a perpetrator. That's a really active kind of decision. Yes, and everything we because language is powerful, you know. And does that happen? I mean, that's that's what you're saying is best practice from your perspective. But does that happen within the profession that children do get labelled as perpetrator and victim? Very much so. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so, in terms of dealing with this issue, when social workers do become involved, I mean, your guide explains that professionals generally already have the skills to manage the situations where there is sibling sexual behaviour or abuse, um, but they'll often report a lack of knowledge or inexperience or wariness of uh, to engage. So tell me more about the skills that social workers have and how they can realise those skills to be put uh, to use in this, in this scenario. Yeah. One of the key issues with um, social work and the social workers understanding really of intrafamilial child sexual abuse is it's still not a formal requirement to learn about it when you're doing your training. So just recently I was at a conference, there was about 100 social workers, they were from students to newly qualified to very experienced to managers, and I asked them to put their hands up if they'd had any input at all on child sexual abuse, and none of them did. Is, so still to, just, just to be clear, sorry, in child sexual abuse full stop or intrafamilial uh, child sexual abuse? Uh, definitely intrafamilial. Well, full stop, there's no really? formal requirement. Yeah. So what you've seen is because often what's happened is we've we've been quite siloed in our thinking about sexual abuse. So sexual exploitation became a really big issue for a period of time. And so what happened is some universities were bringing people in to teach about sexual exploitation. Sexual exploitation is actually the place which is the least likely context to be sexually abused. But that's the kind of area that people were learning about. So with intrafamilial, there was no education. Now, the problem with no formal knowledge and education is despite the fact sexual abuse is one of the four main categories of abuse, if we're not learning about it, then we get our learning from the media. And what we know is the media is full of myths and stereotypes about sexual abuse. So social workers aren't routinely learning about sexual abuse. And not only that, they're not, therefore, sibling sexual abuse is just 
kind of really not on the agenda at all. I want to ask, so in terms of, yeah, in terms of dispelling myths then, do we know what causes children to become engaged in inappropriate, harmful or abusive sexual behaviour with their siblings? Yeah, so I mean, there are some uh, families where sibling sexual behaviour or abuse might take place and actually there's no clear indication that there's a problem within the family. However, there are a number of common characteristics where sibling sexual behaviour takes place in families um, and often that's around issues within the family. So sibling sexual abuse, by its very nature, takes takes place in the context of the family. And so often it's family issues that are really feeding into what's happening. So, for example, domestic abuse, um, real issues in family communication, um, neglect, lack of supervision, um, poor sexual boundaries. So um, maybe unlimited access to uh, online material, so pornography being a really big kind of issue. There are some features of young people, um, individual characters of young people that can make it more likely. So, for example, children with learning uh, disabilities are sort of overrepresented in that percentage of children that sexually harm. Um, adolescence is a feature. So, for older boys, for example, for adolescent boys, for example, becoming very sexualized, wanting to try things out with younger siblings. If you then live in a in a family where there is neglect and poor supervision and other issues around violence then that can kind of create a real context where this sort of thing can take place essentially and the proliferation and accessibility of porn on the internet how how much of that is an issue and in terms of thematic as well because you know I've read stuff recently in terms of content and themes, if you can talk about themes within what's considered mainstream pornography and the idea of sort of like stepbrothers, stepsisters, all that sort of stuff, kind of taboo Mm. stuff, becoming more and more um, prevalent in materials. Does that, is it, is it, um, is it, is it too much to make the, the jump to say that because that's being depicted in terms of themes that kids may be acting that out or is there a dangerous link there potentially? There is a real issue in terms of uh, pornography and young people's access to pornography. It's so significant in terms of the impact it's having on young people's understanding of healthy relationships, sex and all that kind of thing. Um, And there has started to be, there are some um, studies that are starting to indicate the link between harmful sexual behaviour in young people and pornography. And then in terms of siblings also, so um, uh, the kind of difference between one of the problems with, I think one of the highest searches at the moment is around step stepbrothers, stepsisters. Yes, and that's what I'm saying. I think I've read something about this recently, yeah. Yeah, and what that seeks to do is normalise something that kind of isn't normal. So essentially, brothers and sisters who may be kind of watching that stuff are going to be thinking that's more normal than it actually is to, to do. Um, and if you couple that then with a lack of supervision um, and other issues in the family and also, you know, the other kind of feature, while not all children who display sexual behaviour towards siblings or other young people have experienced sexual abuse, the younger the child, the more likely they are to have experienced sexual abuse. Um, and so it must always be a consideration for social workers actually have have the children in this family, whether they're the one that have been harmed or the one who is harming, experience any sort of sexual abuse or other types of abuse, then that's a really key kind of thing for us to think about and address. 
Okay, Anna, that's really helpful. I want to ask then, when sexual behaviour between siblings has been identified, what questions should a social worker be asking themselves to guide their decision making uh, and the support they provide to the family? And I'm asking that question specifically, you know, it's not just the child, it's the whole family, I'm guessing the social worker will be uh, engaging with in relation to the issue. So if we could go through that, um, there's a couple of parts to that question. But yeah, what questions, first of all, should the social worker be asking themselves? Yeah. First of all, what is the nature of the behaviour along the spectrum? So thinking about that spectrum, actually, how how serious do we think this behaviour is? And therefore, depending on that, depending on that is therefore what sort of intervention might you give? What sort of level of intervention or assessment you might do with the family? Really important to look at what is the um, likely impact of the harm. Um, and the thing around impact is it's not always immediately obvious what the impact might be. Um, but what we can do is imagine that sexual abuse by siblings is less harmful than sexual abuse by adults and actually what we know is it can be as harmful as that and when we talk about when we talk about harm and this is something Mm. i want to look at uh, we will come back but just to uh, we've touched on harm a couple of times and i don't want to let it pass by again it's a term that gets used a lot in these discussions we talk about harm but can we unpack that a bit what is the harm how will the child be impacted uh short term long term you know what are the impacts yeah so that Sexual abuse can impact kind of on all areas of a child's development. Um, harm is both physical and emotional. So you may have physical harm caused through sexually transmitted infections, the actual physical impact of the abuse, pregnancy, um, that kind of thing. And then there will be emotional harm. So one of far biggest, by far one of the biggest impacts is around mental health. So um, anxiety, depression, post-traumatic stress disorder, um, issues with substance and alcohol, self-harm, suicidal ideation. So it's something that the harm can be kind of throughout the life course, essentially. It can also, imp- sexual abuse can also impact on, yeah, your kind of the way you are in adult relationships, it can impact on how you parent. I mean, saying that there are a number of mediating factors to that. So um, being sexually abused does not mean um, hands down your life is going to be destroyed because actually people can and do recover from child sexual abuse. Absolutely. And particularly with the right intervention. Um, We also think about the harm being just to the individual children, but actually the harm is particularly in this context to the whole family often. And therefore, that's how we need to respond. So going back to your previous question in terms of how do we respond, it's about thinking about the needs, strengths, views of everyone in the family. And why is it important to take the whole family approach as opposed to just focusing on the child who has been harmed and the child who has caused harm? Because it because this abuse happens in a family context and we know that so many factors within the family can kind of lead to that behaviour. So if we take the child who's harmed, for example, out and give them individual work, but nothing else in that family changes. So if the family is still full of dysfunction, sometimes what you get in sibling sexual abuse is, is these real kind of... Um, what would you say, sort of unequal relationships. So maybe one child being the favourite child or one child always getting the blame, particularly in reconstituted families. So you might have parents of one child, they they split up, one partner meet one parent meets another partner and they have a child and then all of the kind of focus and love is given to the littler child and actually those feelings of jealous anger can translate then into physical and sexual abuse of that child. And in terms of process then, can you talk me through that, you know, a process of working with a family? So establishing what the issue is, what what we need to remember is when sexual abuse happens in a family of any type, but particularly this, it's like a bomb going off in the family. So everyone will be affected by it, not just each of the children, but the parents and also siblings who have may not have been harmed, but who are part of that family. So um, 
the, you know, one of the initial jobs often is kind of approaching it with a calm and, um, you know, a calm manner, helping everyone in the family get their head around what's happened as quickly as possible. Parents will be, I mean, imagine really if one of your ch- children abused another one of your children, the torn loyalties that you would feel from that, the kind of feelings of guilt and responsibility. And if we don't deal with that sensitively and properly, um, that can actually lead to parental denial. So parents can just say this hasn't happened at all. And what does it mean for a child then when their parent is denying the abuse that they have, mm. uh, have suffered? I mean, in terms of compounding the, the emotional trauma that they've, that they've experienced? Yeah. So one of the mediating factors of child sexual abuse is if you're believed by your main caregiver. And we know that that's the most effective thing for any person who's experienced sexual abuse. If their family believe it or their main caregiver believes it, that gives you a much better chance of recovery. Where they're not believed, then that can lead to all sorts of complications. And often what adult survivors tell us is it wasn't the instances of abuse that remained with them. It was the f- impact on all their family relationships. And so where parents don't believe. And of course, in series, in cases of sibling sexual abuse, if you have parents who aren't believing, then essentially we might have to... Um, intervene much more heavily than we would would want to because those children aren't being kept safe. The complications for parents of, you know, you might assume that in in every case of sibling sexual behaviour or abuse, the parents support the child who has been harmed and and therefore the relationship with them and the child who has harmed can be really challenging. But actually it can happen the other way around. So parents can feel very, very protective towards the child who has harmed and feel very kind of blame the victim almost because they've disrupted the family yeah uh, and we're not using the term victim in terms of victim survivor perpetrator but i understand what you're saying anna yes because i was going to come yeah. on to that often that does happen so in terms of sexual abuse and there being victim blaming so that does happen yeah. you, you you've seen this happen absolutely and, yeah yeah absolutely and essentially what you what you want you know is you want parents to be able to support both children and that is a big task for children particularly with and i really do want to mention this so One of the things um, that social workers always need to bear in mind is that one of the parents may also, one or both, may also have experienced sexual abuse in their own childhoods. Now, if one of those parents has experienced sexual abuse in their own childhoods and this then happens in the family, the kind of re-triggering of trauma and the way they approach both children is going to be really affected. So the quicker we can establish and ask the question about their own experiences, the more we can kind of work out how to support them in in a helpful way. So in terms of supporting parents... What does that look like from a social work perspective? Listening to what they are saying, absolutely understanding any kind of initial denial or any distress or any feelings of anger they might have to any child, really thinking to yourself, what would this be like for me, really? And being human. So it's a lot about listening. It's... um, supporting parents number one to understand why their behaviors you might sometimes need to be helping them understand why it's wrong um because some parents might not really understand why it's wrong and might not might be minimizing so educating them really about how that abuse happens without doing it in a blaming way because you know it's, it's a tricky job sometimes to say actually you know we know that siblings who abuse it's often about other family difficulties and so you need to address those family difficulties as well while also not me making them feel so ashamed and guilty and responsible that they can't function. I'm, I'm just brought back to the, the comments you said earlier about, you know, the importance of being believed. I, I read an article a while ago. There's a, an artist I really love listening to his music, a guy called John Murray. Uh, and he, I just remember, he, he had written a lot. A lot of his material was about addiction. He'd been addicted to mm. opiates for years. And it was only later in his career he, he, um, he uh, shared that he had been very seriously sexually abused as a teenager by other boys. Mm. 
uh, I had been raped by other boys and wasn't believed. Or it, it was, I think it was acknowledged but dismissed as horseplay in inverted commas, which is horrific. Yeah. And so what boys do. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, I mean, reading it as, a, as an adult, you're like, I can't, you just can't fathom that that's how somebody would receive yeah. that sort of information. Yeah. Um, and that then, yeah, he was saying that led to a, basically a life of, of opiate addiction and, and, you know, basically coming mm. close to suicide, which is, you know, horrific. Um and 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 it's so sad because actually there would have been hundreds and hundreds of opportunities for him earlier than that point for somebody to have asked him, what was the root of your addiction? Where did this start? And unfortunately, what happens for often for children and for adults actually is they they feel responsible for the abuse they've experienced because essentially a lot of the kind of process of sexual abuse is makes makes the child who is being harmed feel responsible for it and then they have later difficulties around mental health and substance misuse and so they feel doubly bad so I'm bad because I was abused and I'm bad because I have all these problems and actually the opportunity to say to people the reason you've got this and even though it looks clear from the outside so the guy you're talking about he would just be feeling bad about his addiction and nobody might have said to him you know actually your addiction is about something that happened earlier and we just don't ask those questions in adult mental health in adult substance misuse services we just don't ask and when we do People often say, actually, yes, and then we can deal with it. And instead, what we have is these years of people's lives being, you know, devastated unnecessarily. You know, our last episode, this the one before this, was uh, about addiction, an addiction uh, co-produced training uh, program uh, in Derry in Northern Ireland, uh, and uh, we were talking just about that very topic about the impact of uh, childhood trauma in terms of addiction, and it it does it strikes mm. me as unusual that that those questions aren't asked in relation to addiction. You know, people don't choose to become addicted, you know. It's totally fascinating. Yeah, yeah, what is that? What and, is the and such, and such an easy thing to do, you know. It, it, it's, it feels difficult to ask people questions, but actually that's often more about us than it is about them. And that's a bit going back to what we were talking about, social work skills. So, you know, generally we have, we as social workers talk about all sorts of horror with children and young people and adults, you know, violence and death and, you know, all sorts of stuff that we deal with. When it comes to sexual abuse, it's almost like we think, oh no, don't open a can of worms. And actually it, it's just like any other form of abuse. We need yes. to, we have the skills to talk about it. And I don't want to be, because I think this is so serious and I, I hope no one listening thought for a second there's any flippancy to this when we're talking about, you know, asking those questions, but asking those questions of somebody in an, in an environment where they feel safe, where they are not being caused further trauma by having to recount their experience. And I suppose that brings me then back to the, the issue around um, sibling sexual abuse. How does a social worker ensure that a child, a young person, feels safe enough to share uh, their experience with them? Yeah. So what we know, sadly, is most children will show us in their behaviour rather than tell us verbally what is going on for them. So we cannot depend on children to verbally tell us. There are so many barriers to children telling us verbally what's happening. So often what you'll see is it will come out in their behaviour. And actually, it's our job to help them tell us. So all of the research with children, young people and adults says we need help to tell. Unfortunately, all the professionals are a bit scared to ask and a bit worried about asking and, and kind of so they don't. And actually, it is absolutely not the response that kind of disclosure is a two way process. It's about it's about us, even down to things like turning up on time when you when you tell a child you're going to do something, you do it. All of that provides a context of trust being interested in children and asking you know I've noticed you're not seeming okay at the moment what might be going on for you there was a bit of research done with I don't know nearly a thousand young people and the kind of one of the strongest factors that they said that helped them tell was when adults 
noticed they weren't okay and asked about it. Now that doesn't require any more kind of that's that's our skill base anyway isn't it um so yes it's providing those contexts making it safe making sure that we're asking them in you know in places where they're on their own and able to talk so many children report that social workers still ask them about abuse that might be happening in their family either when their family are present or in the same house and actually we know that is not a safe context to be asking children yes yes so anna we talked earlier about what behaviours may fall into problematic or abusive categories. So where there is problematic behaviour or abusive sexual behaviour, at what stage does a decision need to be made as to whether the siblings can remain living together? It's a good question. It's very case by case, of course. But essentially, kind of the key things we need to think about is what what is the, yeah, what's the level of harm that's been caused and what is the impact of that on the children and young people? That isn't always um, massively clear cut, as I said. Um, well, I worked with a family once, actually, just to give you a kind of case example, and the because it's also important to take into account children's views. But I worked with one family where an older brother had been sexually abusing a younger brother. It was before Christmas. The younger brother who had made the disclosure was absolutely vehemently saying I don't want my brother to leave this house I don't want him to leave please let him stay the parents really understood the risk they said they would supervise it was all kind of looking good a couple of weeks later um he developed some really kind of strong indications of trauma and actually that his brother should have been removed and he should have been able to just have some safe space but of course because of the loyalty and because of kind of you know they they may love their brothers and sisters they will love their brothers and sisters highly likely they just don't want the behavior to carry on you know so there's it's, it's it's nuanced in terms of thinking about that but essentially what's the likely likely impact of the harm because you can't necessarily see that at the time so depending on how serious the abuses have gone on how long it's gone on for what is involved all that kind of thing um the extent to which the parents are acknowledging what's happened so if you have a situation where there are a number of issues affecting a parent's capacity to protect they might not be getting the risk they might be angry towards one of the children they we don't think they're going to be able to actually keep them safe that's an important consideration um the quality and the nature of the sibling relationship is really important so for some siblings you know we make assumptions that well couple of things sibling relationship is the longest relationship many children will many people will ever have in their lives we do make assumptions that um they're always good um and actually sometimes sibling relationships are fraught with other issues as well so it's not just about looking at the sexual behavior it's about looking at the whole kind of dynamics within that relationship as well and how good might contact be or not um for that child very often when you're kind of looking at the higher end of abuse, it's really good for the children to be separated while assessments are undertaken. What you have to do is have a clear plan around that so that those decisions are being reviewed all the time. Because what you want to aim for essentially where possible is family resolution. And and just thinking when children are separated, does that mean sort of, would there be any contact ongoing or is it, you know, I know it's case by case, so maybe this isn't a helpful question, but I'm going to ask it anyway, because I've started, Um, uh, you know, is it a case of ensuring children, if there's been trauma, that children aren't seeing each other at all? Or is that, could that be counterproductive to actually keep children completely separate with no contact at all? And again, it can depend. So uh, yeah, it's about kind of just really weighing it up it could be actually that um you think some contact is is a good idea because of the sibling relationship but then what you assess for those children after contact indicates that actually it is not it's not helpful for them so you might want a bigger period of of, you know a bigger period of not having contact the other thing that social workers need to bear in mind is that contact isn't just 
uh, offline. So when you're thinking about separating siblings, you also need to think about the technology and how much they might be kind of talking with each other. Um, but it's very, it's, it's really kind of con- constantly reviewing it as well. So you can you can make a decision at one point and then actually you might need to change that decision around level of contact. Um, yeah. And it, you might start, you might start kind of with uh, more kind of lower level contact. So, you know, just just writing letters to each other and then build up to seeing each other in person and, and do it that way. If anybody missed the start of this, uh, Anna, or if anyone skipped the start of this conversation, I have no idea why you would, but Anna said she was in Brighton and I heard those seagulls there uh, just a few minutes ago. Anna, something which was sparked in my mind, which hadn't considered at all when when pulling together the, the, the notes for this episode, we talked about parental responses. I mean, is there a risk in terms of safeguarding uh, you know, is there a risk t- to the child who has caused harm if it's a family which may have a very severe or kind of, um, you know, corporal punishment uh, regime? You know, is that something that needs to be taken into consideration that a child may be physically abused by a parent for uh, as punishment for what they've what they've done? Absolutely, yeah. They they can have all sorts of, um, yeah. The child who has harmed can have all sorts of issues within the family. I mean, sometimes that translates as parents just entirely denying it's happened at all. Um, but sometimes it can be that they, yeah, they they really punish that child, and and we have to then really think very clearly about how do we keep that child safe. Yeah, yeah. And I'm just thinking through if if that child you mentioned, you know, in terms of jealousy potentially being a motivating factor, if a child has harmed yeah. their sibling because they're jealous of their sibling, and the response they receive is they are beaten, you know, severely. That's not addressing yeah. that in any way which is which no. is productive no no and that's a that's a good thing to think of really because actually if if jealous anger has been part of it then they might already be quite uh denigrated within the family anyway and so then to be for that to come out the likelihood of them getting a really hard time for that is high and i'm keen to find out more about the potential for restoration of relationships between a child who has harmed and a child who's been harmed um is that something that social workers facilitate is that something social workers ought to facilitate um does that put the burden of responsibility on the child who has been harmed i'm keen to get your views on that yeah it's it's a good question of course going back as well to the spectrum so it does depend on the level of abuse that's happened but if we were talking the kind of higher end where there's been what we would call abusive sexual behavior um there is a process that needs to be followed now that will involve the multi-agency group so it needs to involve everyone and all the kind of professionals in the multi-agency network if you're talking about abusive behavior usually you would want to be um, commissioning specialist assessment or somebody within your team who has the specialist kind of skills and training to undertake a specialist assessment of a young person um there would need to be work with the family with both individual children uh, you would then kind of want to be working with both of them and essentially the child who has been harmed you would want to be leading the decision making really about whether contact was going to increase, whether there was a chance of the child moving home. Um, and you would in parallel, I mean, this is ideally what you would want to do is in parallel work with the child who's been harmed and the child who's harmed and work towards essentially a kind of situation where the child who has harmed can apologise to the child who has been harmed. Um, a safety plan is drawn up with the whole family parents at this point you have reduced their vulnerabilities um they understand the risk and they know how to support both children and then family resolution is more likely uh, the other thing interesting thing to think about which we often don't think about with sibling sexual abuse is bearing in mind it's your longest relationship 
we often once we finish with cases we think there won't be any kind of problem in the future but actually you are then at a wedding with your brother or sister or you know there's all those sorts of family occasions that happen throughout life where you know you're going to have to be negotiating how those things work as well yeah when, when 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 parents have their own children i believe that can be a real triggering kind of moment as well yeah, yeah. absolutely yeah, well yeah. with that in mind then in terms of longer term therapeutic support you know is there any sort of recognition of the, the need for that or is it a sense that if if this has been dealt with at the time draw a line under it move on i'm guessing from what you've just said that that's not the case what would longer term therapeutic support look like for somebody who has who has been harmed for in terms of the child who's been harmed um, people require different levels of intervention really depending on the impact on them so there's not no kind of set way but as I'd said before being believed by your main caregiver and having support by the family is the best thing you can that can possibly happen um, and then what you would want is them having some kind of yeah, individual therapeutic work about their experiences of having been abused. What about the child who has harmed because I recognise you know we just in what I've asked the child who has harmed they are a child but in terms of carrying you know potentially debilitating guilt into your adult's um, life because of what you did as a child. I mean, I'm very conscious that often, you know, we as adults look back at things we did as kids, assess them from an adult mindset and think, how on earth could you have done that? And then mm. heap kind of shame and, and uh, maybe further trauma on top of, of your experience as a child. Yeah. So yeah, in terms of what, what does somebody who has caused the harm, how can they be helped to ensure that they don't end up with anxiety and guilt associated with what they did as a child yeah and this is one of the key things to talk to parents about actually because when they are struggling to get their heads around that the child who's harmed has done it one of the really think useful things you can say to them is that you don't want your child to be as you described you know carrying this guilt throughout the rest of their lives so the intervention with a child who's harmed has absolutely got to be about how do we make sure this behavior never happens again but also addressing the other factors in that kind of child's life that might have contributed including issues within the family and helping that young person understand what they've done in the context of what was happening in their family. It's about taking responsibility, but not feeling shame. And it's a it's a kind of nuanced thing. But essentially, yeah, the, the better we can intervene with them and if they can move to a position of taking responsibility. And it is hard for young people to take responsibility for things. But if we can move them to a place of taking responsibility and being able to say, I am sorry for what I did to my sibling, then that's our best chance, really of them being able to kind of go forward as an adult and not feel crippling shame. Anna, thank you. This has been a really helpful conversation. Uh, we've covered a lot of ground. So if we can kind of sum things up, can you give us sort of top takeaway? Maybe I'll push you for five tips if you can, if, you, if, you've, if you've got them as, as succinct as that. Um, can you give us top t- takeaways for social workers um, to think about having listened to this podcast and to apply in practice? I'm guessing reading the guidance, which is going to be in the show notes, is one of them, maybe. Give us your five if you've got them. That's good. I won't mention the guidance bit because that, that's an additional one that absolutely... Okay. There, there is no... The, the, the um, We've had such good feedback about the guidance and it is so super kind of clear and helpful. So I really hope people use it. Um, first of all, I think... You have got the skills to do this. They're the same skills you would need for any other um, any other area of practice. You just need to gain the knowledge. And actually having listened to this podcast, you're already gaining the knowledge. Um, and, and then you can grow your confidence. So that's the first one. Um, second one, the earlier the better with these cases. So even if a behaviour is looking to be kind of developmentally normal or or inappropriate, still intervene and do your kind of work then because we can prevent further abuse. Um, number three, we often kind of... 
the pro- one of the problems with sexual abuse is we often think, what if I'm wrong? So our frame of reference when we're thinking is, oh, what if I'm wrong? What if I'm wrong? Much better actually to think, what if I'm right? What if this is happening? And what do I then need to do next? Use supervision. This can be quite difficult and it affects us all differently in different ways. And actually some of this can feel quite complex, can feel complex. So really good to talk in supervision and talk to colleagues about what you're doing. Um, and then finally, which I think would be number five. Yes. Um, yes, is that while it can feel, and this is all sexual abuse work really, but while it can feel complex and emotional and difficult, there are so many things that we can all do to make a real difference to the long-term outcome of children and young people. Anna, thank you. Thanks for your time. You've really helped me understand this complex and challenging issue, and I'm glad to have been able to have this conversation with you. Thanks so much for coming on to Let's Talk Social Work. Thanks for having me. 